The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter Rocketeers. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 28, Art in Space. And we'll be talking with Hugo Award-winning author Ron Miller about his new book, The Art of Space, as well as his work in Hollywood and his passion for the novels of Jules Verne. If you ever wonder what we're up to between podcasts, check in with us on Twitter or Facebook or email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Also, drop by generationsgeek.com for handy links to all of our podcasts. Now, on with the show. Ron Miller, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you. Let's dig right into your new book, The Art of Space. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that project came to be? Well, actually, I believe it came to be when Will Steeds, the uh, editorial director at Elephant Books, uh, contacted me about the possibility of doing a new book uh, about Chesley Bonestell. And uh, one thing led to another, and we wound up doing a book about uh, 150 space artists instead. <laughs> You've already done a definitive book on Chesley Bonestell that uh, won a Hugo Award. Chesley Bonestell, I mean, I mean, that was a no-brainer for me. I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing what I do today had it not been for Chesley Bonestell. So I threw, my, I threw myself heart and soul into that book because um, I had been collecting Bonestelliana for, you know, 40 or 50 years. And, <laughs> and uh, actually after, his, uh, after he died, after his, his wife passed away, um, a friend of mine and I uh, uh, acquired all of Bonestell's records, photographs, scrapbooks, albums, correspondence, and the copyrights to all his work. Wow. Uh, and so we ran that for a while, and but I, it was, there was no way I could really maintain that archive any real, the way it should have been. So mm -hmm. now it resides in a private collection where it's being uh, properly archived and, and cataloged. So that's good. But in any case, for, for a long time I had access to pretty much everything that remained of Chesley Bonestell. Yeah. So the book, book evolved from that. What came first for you, being an artist or being a fan of space? That was kind of simultaneous. I mm -hmm. grew up back when TV shows were you know, like Space Patrol and Tom Corbett and this sort of thing. And yeah. I would race home from elementary school to make sure I got home in time to see you know, the latest episode of Superman or Tom Corbett or Space Patrol. I ate up everything I could read about astronomy. Um, you know, this, is be this is the era when Sputnik had just gone and yeah. uh, up and the Mercury program was gearing up. So... It was kind of a golden age for space travel in a way because it was everywhere. And so I, could, I couldn't turn around without you know, seeing spaceships, something about space flight or uh, astronauts. But uh, you know, I also loved art. I mean, um, I've been drawing literally as long as I can remember. I would, but I, you know, any ideas I might have had about being an astronomer were shot down when, since I, when I realized I had no talent whatsoever for math. <laughs> and you know, all the numbers that were 80 look, look pretty much alike. <laughs> so I dawned on me, actually while I was in college, that I could combine my interest in 
art with my interest, you know, in astronomy and space and become a space artist, which is what I do. And so that brings us back to The Art of Space, your new book. We've been looking through it and enjoying it. One thing that, that strikes me about it is that when you do a history of The Art of Space, it simultaneously becomes a history of space travel and a history of how people think about space travel. And I found that really fascinating. Uh, what was it like for you to, to go through these centuries of uh, visions of uh, beyond Earth and, and review them and, and put together this book? Well, I've been doing this forever. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, to my left here is two eight-and-a-half-foot-tall bookcases with nothing in it but books on space flight, mm -hmm. uh, astronautics, and there's two, two of the shelves have nothing in them but books that are filled with space art. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them going back to the 19, uh, 1920s. Um, so I've, I've always liked this. I mean, so doing the book was really just something I sort of lived and breathed for, for decades. Um, um, all the historic stuff in the book, you know, the, the stuff, say, from the 1930s on back just came from my own collection. And uh, the remainder of the book largely came from the uh, infinitely generous uh, members of the International Association for Astronomical Artists. Uh, which is this group of about, I think it was about 150, 200 members all around the world who do space art of all kinds. And so between that's that, my things here and them, the book came together. I was looking through the book trying to find a, uh, a new favorite. I thought, I'm going to find my favorite art in here. And I keep coming back to Bonestell for myself. I just so love his work. I, I love what a gloriously optimistic vision of space that they had back when he was working and how they imagined this like like they had no doubt that there would be these giant space stations and uh, people would be working and living in space it's it's so uh, exciting i i still find his work so energizing even though now in some ways it's out of date in its representation of technology, but in other ways it's still far ahead of time because we still don't have big space stations like that. Bonestell illustrated both space travel and the universe the way God meant it to be. Yeah. You know, the moon, the moon with craggy mountains, you know, and yeah. uh, spaceships with pointy noses and wings. Um, and there was, you're right though, there was, there was, there was that romantic quality to his artwork that appeals more, more deeply than if he had just done cold depictions of technology. Yeah. I've often compared Bonacell, you know, some of the similar people, people who work similarly to him, to the uh, Hudson River School painters. And these are the people who went west, you know, in the middle of the 19th century mm -hmm. and brought back these enormous panoramic paintings of Yosemite and, and Yellowstone. Yeah, and uh, these things, these these paintings were you know, near mural size. They traveled the country, uh, like like, ro like road shows, and uh, gave people a real sense of um, really the the the, the awe inspiring quality of um, the American West that, that no one had ever seen before. Nobody even suspected places like. You know, Yosemite or Yellowstone, you know, even existed in reality. And, yeah. and uh, so we see these paintings, which really emphasize not just the, 
the, the, the scientific or the photographic depiction of these places, but you know, that's that, that deep, raw, you know, awe-inspiring all, all emotional side of it. Well, that, that really helped, they say, for example, create our first national parks. We're really based on the public reaction to the paintings of Thomas Moran and Alfred Bierstadt. And Bonnestill did the same thing. You know, until, he, until he was painting depictions of the planets, for example, or a space flight, were obviously artists' depictions. They look like paintings. And it could be easily dismissed. This is something that somebody just knocked off, you know. Well, yeah. maybe that's what the moon looks like. Who knows? But when Bonnestill's stuff was first published in the 1940s, they looked like postcards. And um, for the first time, people thought, wait a minute, you know, I'm looking at the real thing. You know, this, this, nobody made this up. Somebody went out there and got this picture of Saturn. It was, it was, it was a, no one had ever seen anything like them before, ever. And they had a tremendous impact. Um, 30 years ago, when I was working at the Air and Space Museum, I collected a, um, a folder of artwork and books and magazines, mostly from the 50s or early 60s, mm-hmm. that where the artists had just picked up something from Bonnestell. You know, you could see that, you know, well, there's a Bonnestell spaceship, or <laughs> he picked up that landscape straight from Bonnestell. And I stopped when the file got to be over two inches thick. Um, if you're going to do a picture of the moon, well, use Bonnestell's reference because he knows that's what it's going to look like. So he had a tremendous influence on uh, um, not only on artists, but through them, on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people yeah. who grew up expecting space travel to be exactly like that. You know, that was what it's going to look like. And uh, then, they, then, then, of course, reality cheated us. <laughs> and uh, spaceships don't have pointy noses and wings. So. Yeah. They will, though. They're getting there. <laughs> they really are. I mean, uh, what, nothing looks much more like a Bonnestell spaceship than Spaceship One. Yeah. Really? So uh, we just maybe uh, might be uh, anticipating too much. We haven't gotten there yet. I was trying to find my favorite of the entire book, and I couldn't because there's so much amazing stuff in here. But I went into the index and found all of the pieces that you made and chose three that I liked the best. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'm blushing. uh, We could talk about it a little bit. I should probably go get my copy of the book so it's in front of me so we're talking about (laughs) the same things. On page 74 and 75, there's this awesome, like, huge landscape. It's on a moon, and it's super pretty. (laughs) Um, In the little description, it talks about how the star might be expanding into a red giant. Mm -hmm. And so... You can sort of see it because the ice and stuff on the moon is melting. Mm-hmm. And that's super cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I was kind of curious about your work in general. Like if you um, sort of fused digital stuff with pictures or if it was all just you like creating stuff on the computer. It's complicated. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, my, my background is traditional you know, media. So, you know, for the first space art books I did, you know, um, they were all painted. You know, I was using acrylic paint. And I really, really resisted doing anything digital for a long time. You know, my artist friends would say, you know, go, you should turn digital. And, ah, it's all going to look the same, you know. And I, I, I got a book project where I had to both write and illustrate 10 books, two books every three months. 
I did the first two paintings, and I thought, oh, my God, there's no possible way I'm <laughs> going to meet this deadline. So I, I swallowed hard and, start, and started working digitally. And uh, I thought, holy smoke, this is fun. But when, the, but when the, I showed it to my, my artist friends, and they said, you know, oh, it looks like a Ron Miller painting. And I thought, ah, it's just what I needed to hear. Actually, I haven't gone back since. But because my background is traditional media, these things tend to be kind of mixed media, mm-hmm. um, depending on which picture you're pointing to. Some of them I just did a whole thing in Photoshop, lock, stock, and barrel. Other ones, wherever I go, I take my camera with me. So I'm taking pictures of rocks and landscapes and all kinds of clouds and all kinds of things that might go into my files be useful. So sometimes there's some digital photography going into these things. I've, I've built models and photographed them. I can't remember if there's an example in this book or not, but a recent painting I did for uh, Astronomy Magazine of um, the Comet Rendezvous. I built uh, a model, uh, a three-dimensional model, not a digital model, of the Comet and used that in the picture right, you know, when it had been painted on top of it digitally and everything. So, you know, it, it's, it's, they're really mixed media things, really, in a lot of ways. Um, I think there's a painting in here of eruption of a volcano on Io, you know, of all these arcing streams of, you know, incandescent lava that was done with pencil on paper <laughs> and <laughs> scanned I, I scanned it I, I i reversed it so it was white on black and i added color to all those arcing streams whatever is required to make it right yeah um so you know the best way to get a rock in the picture is to take a picture of a rock and stick it in I, that's what i do <laughs> so, <laughs> it just depends it's, it's they're, they're really um a lot of fun for that reason, though. I marked one on page 77 that's a dark landscape with a purple sky. This one actually reminds me of um, the cover of a book, Life as We Knew It, where the moon gets like knocked closer to Earth by an asteroid. And then finally one on page 176. And that one has uh, Dyson Spheres on it. And I was wondering if maybe mm-hmm. you wanted to talk a little bit about those. I did the picture for uh, Astronomy Magazine, an uh, article on, on Dyson Spheres. And um, no, one, no one has the slightest idea what these things are going to look like. And uh, but I visualized them as these open network of um, like 10 trillion little connected space stations surrounding a star. For people who don't know what a Dyson sphere is, the idea is if you can surround a star with a sphere, you can collect energy from it. Nothing's lost to space. Um, so that's, that's the idea behind it. So the idea is to show a star surrounded by a sphere, which, you know, if you start with a solid sphere, you just get balls floating around. You know what they are. So I decided to make it this network so you can mm-hmm. see the star inside and still get the idea across that this thing is, you know, collecting the energy from it. It's hard to describe pictures on the radio. It's like it's like yeah. it's like watching silent movies on the radio. That's what I was trying to describe them. I was like, we both know what they look like, but for the people. Yeah. Well, they have to rush out and buy the book so they can obviously yeah, yes so they can absolutely. look at it. at your better brick and mortar bookstore if you can do it. Yeah. Oh, there was one thing I wanted to point out about your uh, Art of Chesley Bonestell book. I mm-hmm. looked it up on Amazon, and uh-huh. it is. Uh, Currently, uh, hardcover copies are going f- are uh, at uh, $200 and up, and paperback copies are listed at $350 and up. Whoever would have thought I'd be collectible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would really still would like to see 
the book either reprinted or better yet, a, um, a soft cover edition. It would be nice to be able to get it in people's hands who would who aren't, say, rare book collectors. Speaking about getting books into people's hands, <laughs> let's talk mm-hmm. about Black Cat Press, your publishing company. Oh, well, my publishing company is my desk when I get around to doing it. Exactly. <laughs> But I find it fascinating, the stuff that you've been doing on there. Let's talk first about Jules Verne. You're obviously a huge Jules Verne fan, as are we. Hardly any bigger, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about working on these uh, special editions that you've done of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Journey to the Center of the Earth. Gosh, back in 87 or something like that, I was asked to illustrate a new edition of... um, 20,000 leagues. And I discovered that the publisher was going to use, you know, the quote, standard translation, unquote, which everyone in the world has used because it's public domain and don't have to pay anybody. But, but unfortunately, it's also the, one of the worst translations of the book ever published. It was done in the 1870s by this British uh, Protestant minister. And Verne was a French a Catholic liberal. And the translator not only got tons of things wrong, it's outright wrong. I'm surprised he could even you know, translate English into French. He, he cut out anything he disagreed with. So uh, for uh, 150 years, 20, up to 20% of the book had never been translated into English. That's a huge amount of uh, text. Aside from having Captain Nemo explain that the Nautilus floats because iron is lighter than water. You know, which is the kind of you know stuff. The tra- people people would um, chastise Verne, criticize Verne for mistakes like this, and they weren't his. It was the translator. Um, we're talking about the disagreeable territory of Nebraska when Verne said "badlands." <laughs> um, so I told them, I said, you know, I, I, I of course I desperately want to illustrate the book, but how about if I, prov- I provide a new text, one that replaces all the missing text? And one that uh, corrects all the errors, which turned out to be 3,000 of them. So I did that, and I thought, well, that was kind of fun. <laughs> so I, um, particularly for somebody who doesn't really read French, like I do, yeah. So, um, so I did the same thing for Journey to the Center of the Earth, and also uh, a couple of years ago for From the Earth to the Moon. And I'll never do it again. So these are really complete texts of these books. Um, as close, and I didn't try to modernize it. A lot, uh, there's, there's, there's some new translations of, the, of say, 20,000 Leagues that are, for completeness, far better than what I did. But they modernize them. And so it sounds like, you know, somebody in the 21st century speaking. Yeah. And I tried to maintain Verne's sentence structure a bit, uh, the length of the sentences, Keeping that you know, Victorian tone to the whole thing, which I think is important. I mean, you yeah. don't want to update. You wouldn't. You wouldn't update um, Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, you know, it sound like a modern kid talking. So why do the same thing to Vern? But uh, when print-on-demand publishing became became available, I uh, realized that uh, there's a lot of books that science fiction enthusiasts, space travel enthusiasts would love to be able to read. But the only way you could do it would be to, of course, go out and buy a $500, you know, antiquarian book somewhere. And for somebody who just wants to read the book, you know, and not put it in a bag on a shelf, that's silly. Yeah. So I started this little program of reprinting a lot of these really rare, obscure, hard-to-find books in 
uh, nice uniform print-on-demand editions. You know, nice cover, the typography looks – they look like real books. And uh, gosh, I think there's probably 150 of these things now. Some of them, some of the, some of them are available in text form on Gutenberg. Mm-hmm. Most of these aren't available anywhere else in, on the planet, other than through Black Hat Press, because they're just they're made directly from, uh, say, books in my collection and books in the collection of some friends, and uh, they've never been, been say, um, scanned or, uh, or the text made available anywhere else. So I've tried to make a. Uh, also, if these books had original had illustrations, I've included the original illustrations. It's not set up to make money. The books are pretty much. I, I round off the manufacturing price. These are through Lulu.com. Yeah. So I just round the price off to make it look tidier. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's all. So because the whole purpose of the thing is to make the books available, not to make any money off these things. Oh, I should point out, however, uh, there's out of these books, seventy-two or four. Are available through Bain Books as eBooks, so I made them available through Bain. Mm-hmm. So they, they don't look as pretty as uh, the uh, the print ones because you know the, the formatting is just you know eBook format. But yeah. you get the if you're interested in the text and reading some book that's available nowhere else. I mean, um, and some of these are really unusual books. I think that uh, you know uh, going through going through Bain's is, is a good idea. Could you t- tell us a little bit about the Extraordinary Voyages book that you did about Jules Verne's novels? Oh, it's actually sitting right here because I was working on something today or the last few weeks about Verne. In fact, I'm, I'm down to the last few paragraphs of a steampunk novel. <laughs> and so I had, my, I had it sitting out here. Yeah, I, uh, once again, it's one of these ridiculous labors of love I get myself wrapped up into that um, I do for no other reason than I feel compelled to. It's, an, it's essentially an atlas of where the characters in Verne's books go in every single one of his books. Because you know, Jules Verne's books were – the science Jules Verne was interested in was geography. Every one of his books takes you someplace else in the world. And even his inventions like the Nautilus, or, uh, for instance, was really created in order to take his readers someplace they couldn't get to any other way. Mm-hmm. Because the book isn't really about the Nautilus. It's about where the Nautilus goes. So there's uh, about 100 maps in this thing or something like that, plus uh, diagrams and schematics of all the inventions. There's, there's a big recreation of the interior of the Nautilus, uh, best one ever done, I might say. <laughs> and, uh, I've researched this down to the point where practically I counted rivets. So uh, anybody reading Vern just gets a hold of this thing, and they can follow step by step where every character goes uh, uh, point by point. It's really for, you know, the Jules Verne uh, uber geek. Yes, I, I think I'm going to have to get that one I, and, <laughs> and your special edition books because I, I just love Verne and I get frustrated when I'm in a bookstore and I'll pick up a copy of one of the books. And, of course, many publishers have them out there because they can get the text, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from public domain. And you open up and you look in those first few pages to try to get some information about the text. When was it translated? Where did it come from? Is it the unexpurgated text or not? And so often, none of that information is listed in the book at all. And so if you're a fanatic, you're left kind of confused about where do I find a really a definitive edition of the novel? And so it's uh, great that you've uh, put out some of these to to remedy that situation. 
And uh, are you familiar with any other publishers that have done? Um, uh, you, you you mentioned the publisher that uh, updated the text too much. Are you familiar with any other publishers that have done re- respectful? Yeah, there's been well, there's been a kind of um, renaissance in Vern publishing. I can't I can't think it's off the, off the top of my head the publishers, mm-hmm. but in the last say eight ten years, there's been a a large number of newly translated Vern books, uh, like Mysterious Island, um, you know. Um, and some of his more obscure books, even some titles have never uh, have have not even been translated before at all. The Superb Orinoco, for instance, that no one's ever even heard of. I think like the University, I think the University of Nebraska Press, I think has a number of these. But then you know they're they're, they're uh, just, if you look them up, uh, you can just book by the dates um, and and see. Um, mm-hmm. William Butcher is one of the translators who's done quite a few. Um, I can't think offhand of most of them. Um, I'll think in half an hour. I'll think of them, <laughs> but uh, they're easy to find. You just, 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 just look them up, and you can see by the dates and the and, uh, and uh, most of them are university presses that publish these, which okay. would be a clue as well. I used to read some of uh, his novels back when, when Ella was young enough that I would still read aloud to her. Um, <laughs> I read uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth to you, and I, did we do Twenty Thousand Leagues too? I can't remember. I think so. And I did. I think we did From the Earth to the Moon as well. Before we move off your books, you've got too many. We can't cover them all. But I did want to mention uh, the Grand Tour: A Traveler's Guide to the Solar System. Is there a new edition coming out of that one? The third edition, which is the one that's available now, is, is the most recent one. And that's probably going to be the last one, I think. There was almost too much now uh, since that one came out. We could take a book twice that size to do it justice. So. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I mean, a- as we continue to send out more probes yeah. <laughs> to the planet. Well, I, mean, I, I, think, I think the last edition only devoted like two pages to Enceladus. And, you know, you can do a whole book on that silly little place now, you know. So. Yeah. On the one hand, it's, it's sad that, that uh, you won't be doing another edition of the book, but it's a, it's a great reason not to be able to do an edition of a book that we are finally getting so much more information about all these uh, moons well, and stuff. Well, with any luck, I'll be doing whole books on Titan and it's yeah. this. So that's fine, too, which I'd like to do. I've, I've been, been, been working on some things like that, uh, just devoting whole books to... Just very specific places like that that never been had never had a book about them in their lives. Yeah, uh, no one's ever written a whole book on Titan, for instance, uh, which I would you know I'd like to see that. I'd like to talk a little bit about your work in movies and television because you've uh, had your uh, your fingers in some pretty interesting projects. Only by accident. <laughs> <laughs> How did you first uh, get uh, film work? Like I said, wholly by accident. Uh, I never, I've never, I've never sought it out. Back in, I guess it was 82 or thereabouts, um, I was sitting at my drawing table. I mean, literally wondering where my next cheeseburger was coming from. <laughs> and I got a call uh, from this nice lady who said, um, you know, this is Raphael De Laurentiis, and we're thinking about making a movie about Dune. And uh, we saw your book, The Grand Tour, and we thought that your pictures of Mars look like Arrakis. Would you be interested in coming out and working for us for a bit? And I said, I thought, I, I thought to myself, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I said, well, I said, come out for a few, you know, say for a month, and we'll see if we like you and you like us. And I didn't get home for it until a year later. In fact, my wife wound up working on the film as well. She was, uh, she did um, prototype models of everything. Wow. And, uh, in fact, she designed some of the things for. Uh, 
some of the spacecraft and uh, uh, actually the Guild Navigator is mostly hers. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I yeah. I really enjoyed everybody um, I worked with. I still keep in touch with everyone, or not everyone, most many of the people mm -hmm. to this day. And because I apparently did a halfway good job on that, <laughs> uh, Rafaela asked if I would help do this and do the production illustration for the uh, version of Total Recall that she was going to make with mm -hmm. David Cronenberg. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's been about, it's been almost a year on that and uh, didn't go anywhere, yeah. unfortunately. Actually, uh, but, it was, but I think it was a tremendous amount of fun, met all kinds of swell people. And uh, I'm still kind of hoping they, they make, they make, Cronenberg's version because it was so different than the Total Recall that was made. It could be a sequel. I remember back when there was the news of that being in production, and uh, and it was so disheartening when it went away. And then the version that we originally got with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I would give it a pretty mixed review. <laughs> <laughs> there was then recently a a, a remake. Yeah. Um, which I never got around to seeing, so I don't know how that one was oh. compared to... It was okay. To, it was all right? It was okay. It was okay. The Schwarzenegger film was a perfectly entertaining movie, but certainly a much more mainstream approach. And you know when you're... If you're going to watch a David Cronenberg film, you know you're not getting mainstream. You know you're going to get oh, something. You, uh, we, we, we would have had camels imported to Mars walking around the deserts with gas masks, or oxygen masks on. <laughs> And uh, I did drawings of those. I really wanted the camels on Mars really, really bad. Oh, that is cool. <laughs> Maybe one of these days. Yeah. And I saw online that you had, perhaps it was just one piece of art, but you had something in the original Cosmos series. You know, uh, everybody says that. It was, that was so long ago, I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I really don't. I, I have to go back and either watch the whole thing again or, or, or dig out some really, really old records. Um, I, I remember. I remember. All, I remember all being contacted. I remember. All, I have not a clue what it was. <laughs> well, now we're going to have to. This will be a research project. We could. It work will. On. <laughs> we could. We could finally finish. Uh, we started watching. I mean, I watched Cosmos when it was originally on and loved it. And at some point, we watched an episode or two together, mm -hmm. Ella and myself. Mm -hmm. And then um, we've just never gotten around to finishing it. But now we're going to have to start. Well, and, don't do it from the beginning on my account. <laughs> <laughs> and then and just keep a close eye on the credits and see if we yeah. can track down what Ron's yeah. uh, contribution was. And you've done some work with uh, James Cameron. What was that? Oh, he was going to make a Mars movie, basically the, the first expedition to mm. Mars. And uh, I was really well. What, what happened was it, it got dropped largely because well, you know, Red Planet and Mission to Mars came out pretty much at the same time. And it was too many Mars movies. Yes. And I really—I don't even think there really was a script for this at the time I was working on. It was—it was really just a lot of ideas. Uh, I did a ton of pick of of, of, of drawings of spacecraft. Um, uh, my wife did a big model of a. Uh, a Mars rover, and uh, and of course the project was dropped. But I really wish it had picked up because it, it would it would still be the best Mars movie ever made. Well, that's that's one thing I was going to say is that this one could have been the good Mars movies because it the, would have been the ones that came out both uh, kind of uh, flopped, as I recall. Other two I liked Red Planet not the best. Still, yeah, it was because uh, his 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 was more about the exploration of the planet. The mm -hmm. The story evolved from the location 
rather than superimposing other things on top of it, making turning Mars to a background. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I'm still looking for space movies that do that, where the you know the adventure and the story are driven by the environment. There was one other uh, director that you worked with, uh, George Miller. What was that about? Oh, that was about five minutes. <laughs> he was the uh, slated to be the original director for uh, Contact. Myself and about half a dozen other space artists like Don Dixon or Don Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget who all were there. Uh, went to a meeting. Kip Thorne was there. Uh, Carl Sagan was just there, uh, sort of by by by, by um, speakerphone because he he was mm-hmm. he was he was very ill at the time. Yeah. yeah. And so we had this meeting. We we sketched up stuff. We talked about the plot and the story and all these things. And uh, we went home. And then somebody else made the movie. <laughs> Some of these credits on my bio that gets that gets around, I need to go around and correct them some because sometimes these connections are a lot more tenuous, <laughs> than, you know, than, than they deserve. You know, deserves being uh, put on a, a resume. He just called you one time and he was like, "Sup," and you were like, "Sup," and then he just hung up the phone. And that was it. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> what are a couple of your uh, favorite space movies? Oh, well, two thousand and one, of course. Uh, <laughs> Duh, Destination. <laughs> well, going you know going back in history, you know, two thousand one's uh, Destination Moon. Oh yeah. Uh, Gravity. Uh, I'm just making a list of space movies too for uh, uh, the next book for Elephant, which is going to be on on the history of spaceships. I mean, I like all science fiction movies. Anything that's set in space is fine. I'm I, I kind of focus though on favorites being movies where, as I said, the um, space isn't a back. It's the backdrop to uh, to basically a cowboy movie. Yeah. Uh, well, Interstellar. Yeah, you know, um, I, I wanted to see that three more times. Fifteen minutes into the movie, <laughs> I that just that just knocked me out. We haven't seen it yet. Oh yeah, gosh. Go. I've been listening to the soundtrack as I work this past couple of weeks. <laughs> as a sound, as one of the best scores I've I've heard on a film for uh, in decades. Jeepers. Uh, just, just you know, close your eyes and go to the movie. Just listen, listen to the music. I like, I like all science fiction. I like bad ones. I like good ones. Um, I, I can enjoy them all. Uh, a friend came by today, and we we watched uh, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. Oh yeah, we're uh, both big uh, Ray Harryhausen fans on this end. So uh... on this end too. I've even seen Birdemic. I seen Birdemic too. What is that one? Oh, don't, you, if you have to ask, then don't, don't, don't even try to check it out. Uh, <laughs> it is actually the four worst movies I've ever made. <laughs> I can stream movies and whatnot here and, and watch them. It's really distressing how few old science fiction movies I haven't seen. Um, I'm thinking, oh, look, look at this. I think, oh, wait a minute. I've seen that. And I uh, said, so, oh, man, there's no, there's no new old ones. Yeah. And uh, I said, damn, I... Uh, I, I love I love these things, but I don't mind watching them over again. But you kind of need to run across a new old one I haven't seen before. I've seen just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of science fiction movies from you know the teens on up. So I'm bound to run out eventually. I love the the sci-fi movies of the 1950s. Oh and, yeah, uh, those are just some of my favorite things. Uh, the you know the 1953 version of War of the Worlds. Uh, oh, that's 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 re- that's really a hard movie to not like. I mean, it's it's so well done. Yeah. And if you if you actually be, if you if you like turn the sound off, look at the collar in that movie. That's one of the 
best color directed movies, you know, the art directed movies, I think, yeah. in Hollywood history. It's this beautiful movie. And uh, to say nothing of all the other qualities it's got. I, uh, yeah, I, 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 that's one of the movies I religiously watch at least, at least once every year, maybe sometimes twice. I never get tired of that. Did you see what the BBC did a few months ago? I can't think of what they called it. But it was basically essentially a retelling of War of the Worlds done as found 1913 footage and uh, piecing oh, together yeah. a documentary on this war that took place at the turn of the century. In, in which, you know, Martians came and invaded the, war, you know, the Earth and so on. But all, all done as documentary footage. And, and occasionally interspersing interviews with elderly people who were there at the time. And it was absolutely brilliant. Front, it was, it was uh, completely convincing because they used actual documentary footage from the time and inserted, you know, the tripods and, and whatnot. Oh, cool. You, uh, seamlessly. And um, they didn't follow Wells's story real specifically. It was obviously inspired by it. Yeah. So you don't really know what's going to go on, what's going to happen. It was absolutely terrific and just just meticulously uh, accomplished. Yeah. If you haven't seen that, track that down. I think you'd really enjoy that. I have a couple of friends who enjoy making art. Do you have anything to say to them about having a career or just like a hobby? <laughs> oh, I think actually you should probably all go study business economics and, and get, uh, so I, cause I don't need the competition. <laughs> no, if, if um, the best thing to do is just do art all the time. You know, uh, draw, sketch, doodle uh, constantly because the more you do, the better you're going to get. Uh, if you have favorite artists, you know, copy them. Don't, don't show it to anybody. But, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, well, the best ways to learn is to, is to study the people you really like. You know, I mean, I, when I was, you know, uh, first going crazy over Bonestell, you know, I'd sit down and just do my best trying to figure out how in the world did he do these paintings like he, I was completely wrong. <laughs> but I try. I don't know how he did them, but you know, I I, I was studying you know the, the composition, the color. How do you get this texture? And I would try these things out myself, and you know, do the same thing for the artists you like best. Um, I said, you know, you really shouldn't you know post things on the web of things. You, you see, if you copied a Mike Whalen painting or a Frank Frazetta painting, keep it to yourself. <laughs> but it's not really ethical to. Um, you know, pass that kind of thing around, but it's it's the way you do learn. I mean, all these artists did did that um, when they were studying to be art. Uh, it's, in fact, it was a traditional way to uh, to learn art. You know, uh, decades and decades ago, students would go to galleries. In fact, they still do. They'd draw, you know, either uh, little easels in hand or drawing, you know, pads and sit down in front of paintings and copy them. And you learn a lot doing that sort of thing. Um, and just try out things on your own. Um, experiment. Um, but, you know, and, but don't expect to, you know, suddenly become an artist. <laughs> um, although, we, actually, anybody can learn to draw. You know, to be able to put down the piece of paper which you see in front of you. But uh, you can't learn to be an artist. It's kind of two different things. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of, you know, comes, comes with your genes. But you can certainly um, have fun at the very, very least. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to sort of escape, you know, all the rest of your world for a little while is to sit down and immerse yourself in one you're inventing on a piece of paper. So uh, that's a 
pretty disjointed rambling and bit of advice, <laughs> but now they're thinking about it. It was good. They should all be like taking notes when they listen. If you like drawing or painting, then draw and paint. Uh, if you don't feel you're very good, it doesn't really matter. If you're pleasing yourself, then just don't show anybody. You know, they won't laugh at you if they don't see it. <laughs> and, but if you think that, um, you know, if you want to be serious about it, then do your show your stuff uh, to other artists and get, the, get, their, get their critiques and input and do the same to them. Criticizing somebody else's artwork is a great way to learn because you have to justify your criticism. You know, uh, if somebody ever tells you, oh, I don't like your painting, ask them to explain why. If they can't explain why, then they, should have, they shouldn't have opened their mouths. Uh, challenge somebody. Uh, you'll learn something from them. Uh, either because you agree with them and then you did do something stupid or you disagree with them and then uh, verbalizing um, why you disagree helps you look a little more deeply into what you did. So discussing your art, showing it around, uh, having, you know, if you have other artist friends, get together once a week or every two weeks and have little critique sessions. Uh, there's all kinds of things you can do to, uh, to make yourself a better artist. Yeah, I would be a horrible art critic because sometimes, uh, like, we go to the walker for school and I'm just there, like, looking at a, like, a, a board with knives in it and like tearing my hair out. <laughs> I just get angry. And modern yeah. art doesn't doesn't speak to you. Well, yeah. I've a lot of art doesn't speak to me. I just get I just get mad. Well, here's here's one more little piece of advice. There's two ways you can look at an artwork. Um, for example, there's there's whole schools of art that kind of leave me cold. Uh, say a lot of abstract expressionism does. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, I can appreciate it. You know, I try to understand what the artist is trying to do, what they're trying to express, what the purpose is of it. And I can appreciate it for that. And even knowing that, even if I don't really like the results, understanding what the artist was trying to do at least gives me something to learn and appreciate. So, you know, if you look at something that's really, like, dumb, <laughs> um, try to find out... <laughs> Yeah, try to find what the artist's intention was, and and then decide did they succeed? Uh, you know, did the artist say the artist? Well, I wanted to express you know my feelings about the about you know star you know starving hamsters in pet shops around the world. <laughs> well, then you know what he was trying to do, and the question then, did his artwork succeed in doing that? If the answer is yes, then it's really not a bad piece of artwork. You don't have to like it, but you can at least know it was it succeeded and what was good. It's good. If it still makes no sense, then it's really bad. You, 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 all, all feelings of guilt are, um, are erased because it, it is stupid. <laughs> but but you know, at least find out what, what, what the intentions were. And you can, you, can, you can judge the art on that and decide whether it was successful on those terms. Even if you don't, even, you don't have to like it. Next time I'm at the walker, I'm going to hear your voice in my head. Just <laughs> <laughs> be like, Al, just read the caption. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, I have a friend who's a, who's a, who's an uber movie uh, geek. I mean, this guy knows everything about every movie made literally since 1900. I mean, it's it's uncanny, and he does not understand why I'll watch a bad movie. <laughs> and I say, you know, I, I say, you know, uh, why do you waste your time watching these terrible movies when you know, like play a knife from outer space or something? When you watch something good, I say, well, because I'm, I'm enjoying it. I you. you, you even if I know it's a bad movie, but I can I if I watch it from like what Edward was trying to do, mm -hmm. I, there's things in there I can appreciate. 
and uh, and realize it's not that bad. They can have their own charm sometimes, and sometimes older movies like that, the low-budget movies of uh, yesteryear, what comes across sometimes is still so much how much they loved what they were doing. Yeah. You know, they loved the movies. They wanted to make a movie, and you can sense their, their aspirations even as they are falling so far short. Can't you see some of these old B-movies from the 50s will have really brilliant ideas. They're probably um, uh, maybe too good for bigger budget movies. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the friend who came by today, we, we, every, every Sunday afternoon we will watch some old movie here. And I was suggesting Kronos for next uh, Sunday. It came out in the 50s. And zero budget, you know, um, actually had cell animation for, 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 the, for the, uh, on some of the special effects. Mm-hmm. And which, but the idea was brilliant. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. This is, this is machine lands on earth. It's the size of, it's the size of the Chrysler building, but it's just a huge block. It was like the monolith. Yeah. It just sits there. It's a big black thing. It absorbs energy and apparently the implications are broadcasted back to where it came from. That's all it does. And um, the idea of the alien monster in this film, basically just being this big, faceless black block the size of a skyscraper, is a brilliant idea. Yeah. Uh, a, they did it on a budget of like $18, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, some of the, some of the effects are... are, are they, they pushed their effects budget as far as they could. They did some really neat things with no budget. But they had an idea, though, I think that was as good as any movie of uh, probably a much uh, – actually better than some bigger budget science fiction movies, which would have just had a monster, you yeah. know. So some of these old movies are worth watching because some, uh, uh, they, didn't repl- they didn't replace imagination with budget, <laughs> which so often happens. In this age of uh, photorealistic CGI, <laughs> there's all these huge – pretty images thrown at you but there's explodies yeah but there's nothing behind it it doesn't right. grab you in, in that's, why so, that's why i was so tickled to see how much of of interstellar was not cgi yeah and, they did uh, a lot of practical photography on uh-huh. location yeah and uh uh like the, the spacecraft was a model and uh i thought you're gonna get shows which is good we love us some good old-fashioned practical model mm-hmm. making we do <laughs> I was talking to a friend, a special effects friend of mine about this some years ago. And my idea was he, he, sometimes like even in some of the George Powell movies, like, like, like in Conquest of Space or even three, you see, sometimes you can see the wires if you look, yeah. you know. But what it does is you, it puts you in the position of erasing them. <laughs> and, it, and, and it makes these movies more uh, participatory. Mm-hmm. You know, you're taking part in creating the illusion. Instead of this illusion being there, done. And I think that actually makes these movies partly more fun, I think partly more immersive mm-hmm. and in a way more believable. Um, so I think that sometimes the you know, having the strings show occasionally isn't really that bad a thing. You do mentally erase them. Yep. Uh, I've seen some movies five, half a dozen times before I realized that you know, the strings hold the spaceship even were visible. Because I had done that. I really I had done that. I just they I erased them. I said, Holy cow, those things are blatantly obvious. Why did I see that years ago? Well, yeah, I was watching The Lord of the Rings last night with my friend, and for the first time I was noticing 
the cuts where they replaced Elijah with Kieran, his size double. <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, that's Kieran. And my friend's like, what are you t- what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, it's his size double. He's just a little person. That's, it's him. <laughs> well, Ron, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was uh, a lot of fun talking with you about all these uh, various geeky things that yeah. you've done. It was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. If I can ever help you guys out again anytime, please let me know. Oh, we will. You're on the, the permanent list of people that uh, <laughs> we want to keep in touch with. <laughs> I hope you will. I, I enjoyed this thoroughly. We did too. Good night. Good night to you. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for episode 29, The Battle of Three Movies. We'll be talking about the final Hobbit movie and how it wrapped up the series with special guests Kevin Lauderdale, host of the Chronic Rift Network podcast, It Has Come to My Attention, and his daughter Elizabeth. Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a boat in Lake Town. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next, next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>